This is the Education Gadfly Show. I just call myself the old guy they keep in the attic, but go ahead. <laughs> God, more or less the same thing, yeah. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, the original Education Gadfly, Checker Finn. Flapping right back in. Thank you very much for having me. You are what the uh, kids today would call the OG, the OG Gadfly. <laughs> I just call myself the old guy they keep in the attic, but go ahead. <laughs> More or less the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I never thought of that. That's what OG stands for, right, Mike? Does it? I, I don't even know. I think I asked my son Nico once, and he didn't actually know what it stood for. He just knew that that's what we call, you know, it's a sign of respect. It's, it's okay. a respectful okay. O-G-A, O-G-A, old guy attic. Go ahead. Nico's high school football team, the Walt Whitman Vikings, who are going to bounce back after an 0-9 season last year. Got a new football coach, 30-year-old guy, and uh, he hired his defensive coordinator is his dad, so they call him Coach O-G. I'm not sure about this is politically correct. I've wondered about that myself, yes. Uh, There are people in Scandinavia who would probably take offense. Yes, the Walt Whitman North people. I thought that the Walt Whitman High School should have something having to do with Walt Whitman, something about the pen being mightier than the sword, but that's a well, whole different Obviously, they should be the Walt Whitman poets. Mike, are you still <laughs> welcoming to the show? <laughs> oh, right. And also joining us is David Griffith. David, welcome back to the show. Hi, Mike. Good to be here. You were gone for four months. I kind of that's forgot. I'm not used to having a co-host. It shows. It shows. Hey, but second time back. I know I made a big fuss of it last time you were on, but now nah, it's just uh, like old times. All right. It is great to have you both here. And we are going to talk about a little bit of a debate that we are having in the pages of the Education Gadfly about whether education reform is dead. So let's do that in Ed Reform Update. All right, Checker, you and our good friend Rick Hess have a long piece, 5,000 words, in National Affairs with the title, Is School Reform Dead? Question mark. And I'd like you to start by answering that question. Is education reform dead? And if so, what killed it? Well, it took us 5,000 words to explain that. So I'm not sure I could do it in a podcast. But briefly, we think that the consensus version of ed reform is, if not dead, is hibernating. And we're not sure whether winter will ever end. The consensus form of ed reform is the kind that was symbolized by No Child Left Behind, the kind of standards testing accountability and some school choice that managed to get both Republicans and Democrats on board in an extraordinary compromise, if not consensus. And that lasted a surprisingly long time, but it's fallen apart for reasons that have a little bit to do with education, a lot to do with politics in America today, as well as a kind of overreach in retrospect on the part of the federal government, which quickly got entangled in politics. When the federal government starts telling people that their schools are bad or the federal metric tells people that their schools are bad and they don't believe it, and then it gets associated with the government in Washington. If you're already kind of ticked off about the government in Washington, this is a good reason to get ticked off about its education arrangements also. Mm -hmm. So winter may end someday, but right now it's pretty chilly out there. You really talk about this consensus, this coalition starting way back in early 80s, right? This was coming out of a nation at risk that we had. Coming out of a nation at risk. That drew a lot of people, starting with governors, actually, both left and right, Republicans and Democrats, especially in the South. They all said, whoa. 
we got to do something about this. Our kids aren't learning enough. Our schools aren't effective enough. we got to do something about it. And it stayed bipartisan right through the big George H.W. Bush Education Summit in Charlottesville. The national goals that were jointly agreed upon by the Republican president and Bill Clinton, a bunch of Democratic governors, it lasted through the 90s. It lasted into No Child Left Behind. And for the most part, it lasted into the Obama administration. And then it was falling apart and the Trump stuff made it worse. I wrote a piece responding to this and in large part agreeing with it, but offering some of my own thoughts, I guess, more optimistic thoughts. I reminded readers that way back in the day, Rick and I used to talk about this reform coalition as the Washington consensus. You've probably heard that term in foreign policy circles. Parties come and go, the Republicans or Democrats came in, but some of the basics of foreign policy stayed the same, a basic commitment say to what now people call the neoliberal order, but you know, uh, free trade and trying to expand democracy across the world. Uh, That was in place regardless of who came into power, at least for a while. Well, in education, we had that too. And at least from George H.W. Bush into Bill Clinton, into George W. Bush, into Barack Obama, of course, they had some differences, but they largely embraced education reform. They made education a priority and the differences were kind of nuanced. They weren't huge. Clearly with Trump and then uh, now with Biden, we are in a different place where education is not the top priority and where they haven't embraced big chunks of the school reform coalition. And, and of course, we see this huge polarization happening in our country, and it has impacted the education space. We've got these education culture wars, and, and that's an issue. But my main argument, Checker, is that despite the strains on the politics and the coalitions, uh, maybe the politicians, even some of the organizations in ed reform, ed reform keeps going. We still have charter schools, and they keep growing. We still have testing under the Every Student Succeeds Act, annual testing. It's still there. You can go look it up. Most states actually still use the Common Core standards, even though they won't admit it. And they have tests that are much better than the tests that we had 10 years ago. So that's happening as well. In fact, we have this movement to improve the curriculum, the instructional materials in schools. And that's made a lot of progress in recent years, more market share. The question, at least the title, was the end of school reform, question mark. And my argument is, look, as tough as things have been politically, school reform marches on. And that's good because it's doing good things for kids. Am I being uh, Pollyanna here? You've long referred to me as Mr. Glass Half Empty and yourself as Mr. Glass Half Full. And I think some of that's going on right here in this conversation and debate. But I also think that a lot of what you're seeing is momentum. You know, you can turn off the engine and the vehicle still keeps moving for a while. Mm -hmm. And that's happening for sure in lots of places. But it's also getting some brakes put on it by Democrats in Congress who don't like charter schools, by uh, teachers unions that have gotten more sophisticated about how to push back against testing by my former colleagues in the Maryland government who don't want any accountability. And there's momentum, but there's brakes being applied. Mm -hmm. Of course. And and this is never easy. And, you know, nothing is ever inevitable here, uh, in in my view, on this kind of stuff. But the momentum is significant. The question that I have is, what can we do to rebuild a at least a Washington consensus? I'm not super optimistic about building grassroots support for things like testing and accountability. There never has been grassroots support for that. But boy, just imagine if after 2024's election, we had a president who cared about education and education reform again. It's not crazy. It could happen. I think we'd be back in business. David, get in here. There's a lot of things I could say, Mike. I think the first thing I'd say is that one data point, one president, two presidents is not a trend, right? I agree that the Biden administration hasn't really fallen into the mold of these other 
presidents that you're talking about and that that reflects broader politics. It also reflects some very specific things about Biden and where he comes from and what he believes. And so I'm, I'm sort of- Who he's married to? Who he's married to. I, yeah, I don't really like to bring spouses into it, right? But that was what I was thinking. You know, I guess I'm sort of hesitant to overinterpret one administration's particulars. I don't think there's any denying that this has gotten harder. Lindsay and I like to talk about the quiet route and the loud route, right, when it comes to Congress. If you pay close attention to Congress, as we do, right, there's actually a shocking amount of substantive legislation that's passed in the last three to five years. It's just that nobody's heard of it. And Congress has sort of done its job when they think nobody's looking. And I guess that's sort of where my head went as you guys were talking. I think the loud route, you know, where we get together big consortiums or coalitions that announce big national goals for for education, that is pretty dead, or at least very dormant in my mind. It depends on what you mean by Washington. When you're talking about consensus, I still sense a lot of consensus among Washington eggheads. Don't know that if it's still filtering its way up to elected officials, but I guess I would say the quiet route is always open to us. There's still a lot of work that we can do to sustain this momentum. It just may not involve Joe Public as much. Yeah. And look, I think that's a great point, David. And I I would argue that a lot of the curriculum work going on, especially pre-pandemic, and hopefully picked up again now post-pandemic, was pretty quiet. But with groups, you know, organizations like Great Minds, publisher of Eureka Math and Wit and Wisdom, you know, getting growing market share, putting out really good professional development attached to these materials, that was making real progress pretty quietly. Now, it has run into some headwinds, as Tucker has noted. On that case, it's from the right. This culture war against woke curriculum, so-called woke curriculum, uh, wit and wisdom is, you know, there's a lawsuit in Tennessee to try to get a school district to stop using wit and wisdom because of you know, kids read the Ruby Bridges book, which strikes me as completely insane. But that's politics. It's not inevitable, but there is progress being made. My understanding is that it is not unusual to have these populist moments that can last a decade after a financial collapse. We saw it after the Great Depression, and we know what happened in the 1930s and into the 40s, how awful that was with that version of populism. And of course, the Nazis and the fascists and all the rest, uh, we see around the world right now that we're still in this moment where populist politicians have been getting elected, especially on the right or the far right. But eventually, history at least would tell us that those movements burn themselves out. And at some point, voters want competence again. They want governance. And politicians look around and say, boy, our schools aren't as strong as they could be. That's where I'm hopeful that we can get back to the conversations about how do we improve our schools. And I know technocratic is a dirty word, especially on the right. You know, maybe we come up with a different euphemism where and so are elitists. But look, we're trying to say only on the right, Mike. I I didn't know it was a dirty word until I came to Fordham, in all honesty. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is wishful thinking that this populist age comes to an end, but it could, right? Sure. And it could snow tomorrow, even though it's 98 (laughs) degrees out. You can keep the four ounces in your eight ounce cup if you want to. For me, it's about two ounces right now and not rising. Well, we will leave it there. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you, Checker Finn. Again, our original education gadfly, our OG, and I should say our president emeritus. And what else do we call you? I think senior, uh, distinguished senior fellow. Something or other. Yes, at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. And again, author with Rick Hess of an article in National Affairs called The End of School Reform? Question mark. Please go check that out. Thank you. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. 
Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike, as always. You know, sometimes I think Checker and I should just do a podcast called uh, Glass Half Empty or Glass Half Full? Oh, yes. Question mark. And, <laughs> and, and, and that could be our theme on, on everything, not just education, but uh, everything. Except you never switch places. We always know which which glass each of you are. <laughs> or that's is. true. Huh. I could force myself to be critical and pessimistic about something. Right, right. But could he force himself to be optimistic is the real question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that is true. That is true. I, I don't know. I don't uh, but know. we're all the better for it. Fordham is. That's what we think. <laughs> it's that creative tension. All right. Well, hey, Amber, what you got for all us on right. the research front this we week? We have a new nationally representative survey from RAND, administered to principals and survey teachers, rather, in uh, January, February 2022, asked them about a couple politicized topics. So the implementation of COVID safety measures in 2019, how did that go over? And classroom conversations about race, racism, and bias. Two tricky things that they asked educators and principals about. About 2,300 teachers, about 1,500 principals. They oversampled educators and principals of color, so they'd have representative estimates from those groups. I've got eight highlights, and you know a few of them I'm going to quiz you on, but not all of them. So let's start off with a bang here. Approximately how many principals and teachers, because they're kind of close, report that the intrusion of political issues and opinions have given them stress mm-hmm. rel- relative to their teaching or leadership? See, this is unfair because I think I might have seen a press article about <laughs> this, but uh, was it 25%? Uh, what do you got, David? Yeah, I read the study. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he's a ringer. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. Well, give me a guess. Maybe I've forgotten some things. Keep going. Oh, man. 48%. It was 40 for teachers, 48 for principals. So if you'd done the 40s, you would have been pretty good. Wow. So that's kind of a lot of people stressed out by these things. Um, By comparison, because they also have a sample of just working adults, only 16% of working adults indicated that political things were a stress for them in their job. Number two, 41% and 52% of white teachers and principals respectively said that the intrusion of political issues into their profession was, again, a stressor, but 36% of teachers of color and principals of color say that. So it's lower for folks of color. Teachers and principals in schools with predominantly white kids were significantly more likely than those in schools with predominantly kids of color to consider these intrusions very stressful. Number three, more ELA teachers than elementary education, math, science, or social studies teachers report that politics is stressing them out in their job. I thought that was interesting, right? Maybe because ELA teachers are getting involved in these book banning conversations, but more so than social studies teachers. They were a little bit higher than even those folks teaching history and civics. This was interesting. Um, Again, approximate of teachers and principals, because they're kind of close, agreed that states and K-12 districts should be allowed to mandate mask requirements, vaccine requirements, or any other COVID-19 safety measures. Hmm. Oh, this is going to be high, I would think. 75%. David? Yeah, 50. Uh, you're a little closer. It was 61 principals, 57 teachers. So pretty close, mm. o- over half. Uh, meanwhile, only 20% of teachers and principals thereabouts supported bans on these various COVID things. 
Then we turn to legal limits on classroom conversations about race, sexism, racism, these other topics. Over half of teachers and principals say there should not be legal limits on those types of classroom conversations. About 20% of both groups report that there should be legal limits on these conversations. The remaining quarter are just not sure. Black teachers and principals were more likely than white teachers and principals to believe there should not be legal limits on these types of race uh, and sex conversations. Number six, what do you think percentage of teachers that report they have sufficient access to resources and guidance to navigate conversations about race, racism, or bias in their classrooms? David? <laughs> I don't know. I don't care. I, I can't imagine what guidance could be considered. <laughs> right? I'd say 20%. David, you're going to play? Come on. 15. Uh, 14. There you go. Uh, 14% say that, you know, they're, they're good on this, on this guidance. Principals were most likely to find guidance from what person or entity as very unhelpful. <laughs> What'd you think? Um, <laughs> That's a gimme. Come on. Wait, this is the principals speaking? Yes, yes. Uh, the superintendent? The state agency. So the department, oh, the yeah, the depart, the state department of ed, they said, you know, they're, whatever they're giving out is very unhelpful. They're considering Ouch. guidance from their supervisors and their principal colleagues, though, has been pretty helpful when they're dealing with mm. some of these conversations. Um, on number six, 60% of teachers and 65% of principals report that they believe systemic racism exists meaning as defined racism embedded in systems and structures rather than present only in interpersonal interactions. 20% say that they don't believe it exists and the remainder are not sure. Again, more teachers of color, 69% report believing in systemic racism than white teachers, 57%. And then number eight, finally, what percent of principals, I mean, this was 2019, these were pretty big debates. What percent of principals report receiving harassment or hostility or aggression related to their school's policies on COVID-19 at the time? 80%. If memory serves, it's it's somewhere up there. Yeah. Uh, six, 61. So still, okay. still fairly high. And just 14% of teachers said that they were harassed when it came to teaching about race issues in the classroom. So much lower. And then they asked principals whether they knew the views of their students' parents when it came to their politic. Can you foresee any of these things happening? Very low percentages, about a quarter of principals said that they didn't know uh, the views of, of parents. So that's number eight. Recommendations, they had a few, one of which was maybe teachers could use sample communication materials as they try to have these conversations. But what you guys think? That's, that's what I got. I was off on some of my guesses here. A couple of things that that question about systemic racism, I feel like that is very different than the American public as a whole, although I need to check it. I, I remember reading something just the other day. I think it was about Hispanic voters views on that question. Maybe it was Hispanic working class voters hmm. and a majority of Hispanic voters gave the answer that there was not systemic racism, or at least that question was sort of a choice. It was either do you think that racism is systemic in structures or do you think racism is something that comes from individuals right. and a majority went for the individual one? So if that's the same question that we use in other contexts, it wouldn't be interesting to say that 
teachers and principals in America are on the whole much to the left of America on these racial mm, issues. It wasn't worded that same way. That would have been a more interesting question, in my opinion. Okay. But anyway, go ahead, Dave. I think they're a little to the left, Mike, but I think America is farther to the left on this than you think. I need to look at the wording of the question, and maybe that's what it is. So mm-hmm. um, the, the social studies ELA thing is kind of interesting. I know. I'm like, well, maybe it's just the social studies teachers. They're, they're just all football coaches, and they don't get stressed out. <laughs> so not, nothing stresses them out. Politics, nothing. They just don't get stressed out. Yeah, I don't know about maybe that. Maybe they're just used to it. I don't know. Has there ever been a time when social studies – I mean, if it's history, right – then it's kind of harder to contest in some ways, mm-hmm. right? Not that you can't contest it, but it, history is sort of history, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas these books tend yeah. to be more edgy and exploratory and maybe written in the last 15 years. And yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. I, that may be true. I mean, we know from polls that the public, even in the midst of this culture war, overwhelmingly say they want American history taught warts and all. It's not the history stuff that's driving people crazy, including on the right, for the most part. It's this discussion about how do you describe or discuss race and racism in America today? Maybe those topics are more likely to come up in English language arts. I know my son. There was some summer reading assignments. All of the assignments had the same theme, basically, which Mm -hmm. is that America is a terrible racist country. Thank you, Montgomery County Public Schools. Books for young people written in kind of not a very uh, nuanced way hit them over the head with the message about terribly racist, for example, police are. It made him mad. It makes me mad. That's the LA. That's not history. Right, right. That's surprising, right? I mean, did you say anything, Mike? Well, school hasn't started yet, so I guess I can... <laughs> you, 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 try to, you try to be measured sometimes, but not always. <laughs> I do. I do. But not always. You're right. To me, what this highlights is fundamental tension and maybe even bordering on a contradiction between the notion that parents, kids should be educated the way their parents want and the notion that the teachers and principals need to be able to conduct their business and we should trust their professionalism and that, you know, you need to have free expression and a free and open environment in the classroom to discuss difficult things. I I don't know that you can square that circle at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Let me put it this way. I, I am very skeptical of the notion that passing laws is the way to address this. I'm okay with parents going to teachers and challenging them if they think that something is slanted or inappropriate or whatever. I'm just very skeptical that we can right into law the difference between Mm -hmm. a balanced discussion of race in America and ideological agenda one way or the other. It just strikes me incredibly slippery. I agree, Dave. I don't support those laws for that reason. I think actually local school boards are well suited to handle these kinds of controversies. Not here in where I live in Maryland, because our school districts are humongous. You know, Montgomery County, 160,000 kids. The school board members are basically big time elected officials. It's very hard to get a hold of them and get their attention. And But if my district was a couple thousand people and everybody knew everyone, you'd have these debates you know, at a local level. And I think that does work mostly. I will say, though, if you view the public school system as an arm of the government, which at some level it is, that's where parents feel particularly. Right. I mean, they're not, I mean, we they're know, not college professors. Yeah. No. And, and we know your public school parent, you're going to have to put up with some stuff. Your kids are going to have to put up with some BS. That's part of it. That's part of the package. You get your education for free. You got to put up with some stuff. <laughs> I get it. You know, yeah. if it's the government and it feels like propaganda, obviously that rubs people the wrong way. That's all well and good. But as a practical matter, I, I just don't know how we're supposed to monitor every word that teachers say. 
it's a given, it's inevitable that there'll be a lot of squishiness in terms of how this works. More fundamentally, I would just challenge listeners. I, I'm skeptical of the notion that having a leftist or super conservative ninth grade history teacher or English teacher is the end of the world. I mean, don't we want kids to be exposed to multiple viewpoints? Can, can, exposed to one viewpoint. can the same teacher give them both? I would like to think so. <laughs> you get a Democrat one grade, you get a Republican the next grade. They, oh. they teach you In a education bit. you do? I don't know. Right. I don't know how many of those Republicans you're going to get education. but You had 20% of teachers, at least, who were saying that they questioned the existence of systemic mm-hmm. racism. I don't really agree with, but isn't it inevitable that kids are exposed to a variety of viewpoints from their teachers? That has not been our experience in Montgomery County so far. Well, and I remember my biology teacher, when she got to evolution, said she taught what was in her textbook. And then she said, for those of you who have other belief systems at home, feel free if you want to talk to me after class. And I thought that was a decent way to handle it. There were Mm. questions maybe that were coming up from folks that were taught differently at home. So I feel like there's a way to thread this needle. Yep, yep. Good. Hey, I can't wait till David's kids, who are still young, can't wait till they're in school. Oh my gosh, we'll see. Brainwash them again. He's going to shift him hard to the right. All right. All right. Hey, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.